0: Lesson 3 for July 8th through to fourteen, The Unity of the Gospel. Sabbath afternoon, July 8th. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you humbly again this week as we open your word. We need the Holy Spirit to guide us, because we see in this lesson some of the struggles that Paul had in writing to the Galatians and to others because of the difficulties that were occurring in the church as people were not following what the Holy Spirit guided and what your word showed. We pray, dear Lord, that as we open your word this week that we may see what you have there for us individually as a church and as families. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Philippians chapter 2 and verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. Let's read that again, Philippians chapter 2, verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. Protestant reformer John Calvin believed that disunity and division were the devil's chief devices against the church, and he warned that Christians should avoid schism like the plague. But should unity be preserved at the cost of truth? Imagine if Martin Luther, the father of the Protestant Reformation, had, in the name of unity, chosen to recant his views on salvation by faith alone when he was brought to trial at the Diet of Worms. Ellen White writes in The Great Controversy, page 166, Had the reformer yielded a single point, Satan and his hosts would have gained the victory. But... His unwavering firmness was the means of emancipating the church and beginning a new and better era. End of quote. In Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through to 14, which we'll study this week, we find the apostle doing everything in his power to maintain the unity of the apostolic circle in the midst of attempts by some believers to destroy it. But, as important as that unity was to Paul, he refused to allow the truth of the gospel to be compromised to achieve it. Therefore, while there is room for diversity within unity, the gospel must never be compromised in the process. Sunday, July nine. The importance of unity. Question: Read First Corinthians chapter one, verses ten through to thirteen. What does this passage tell us about how important Paul believed unity in the church was? And we'll also read Galatians chapter two, verses one and two. First Corinthians one. Verse 10. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And then Galatians chapter 2 verses 1 and 2. Then after fourteen years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run, in vain. Having refuted the allegations that his gospel was not God-given, Paul directs his attention in Galatians 2, 1 and 2 to another charge being made against him. The false teachers in Galatia claimed that Paul's gospel was not in harmony with what Peter and the other apostles taught. Paul, they were saying, was a renegade. In response to this charge, Paul recounts a trip he made to Jerusalem at least 14 years after his conversion. Though we're not totally sure when that trip took place, no trip in antiquity was an easy affair. If Paul travelled by land from Antioch to Jerusalem, the 300-mile trip would have taken at least three weeks and would have involved all kinds of hardships and dangers. Yet, in spite of such difficulties... Paul undertook the journey, not because the apostles had summoned him, but because the Spirit had. And, while he was there, he set his gospel before the apostles. Why did he do that? Certainly not because he had any doubt about what he was teaching. He certainly did not need any kind of reassurance from them. After all, He already had been proclaiming the same gospel for 14 years, and though he did not need their permission or approval either, he highly valued the other apostles' support and encouragement. Thus, the accusation that his message was different was not only an attack on Paul, but also an attack on the unity of the apostles and of the church itself. Maintaining apostolic unity was vital because a division between Paul's Gentile mission and the mother church in Jerusalem would have had disastrous consequences. With no fellowship between the Gentile and Jewish Christians, then as F.F. F. Bruce writes in the Epistle to the Galatians, page 111, Christ would be divided and all the energy which Paul had devoted and hoped to devote to the evangelising of the Gentile world would be be frustrated. So to think on today, what are some issues that threaten the unity of the church today? More important, after we define them, how do we deal with them? What issues are more important than unity itself? Monday, July 10, Circumcision and the False Brothers Question, why was circumcision such a focal point in the dispute between Paul and certain Jewish Christians? And, why is it not that hard to understand how some could have believed that even the Gentiles needed to undergo it? Well, first of all, we'll look at Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 through to 22. When Abram was ninety-nine years old the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am almighty God walk before me and be blameless and I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham.' For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations, for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, and you and your descendants after you throughout your generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generations, he is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. He who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her, and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be from her. Then Abraham fell on his face, and laughed, and said in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who is one hundred years old? And shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, O oh, that Ishmael might live before you! Then God said, No, "'Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, "'and you shall call his name Isaac. "'I will establish my covenant with him "'for an everlasting covenant "'and with his descendants after him. "'And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. "'Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful "'and will multiply him exceedingly. "'He shall beget twelve princes, "'and I will make him a great nation. "'But my covenant I will establish with Isaac.' Whom Sarah shall bear to you at this set time next year. Then he finished talking with him, and God went up from Abraham. And Galatians 2, verses 3 to 5, Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in, who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. And Galatians 5 verse 2 Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And verse 6 For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but faith working through love. And Acts chapter 15 verse 1 and certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren unless you were circumcised according to the custom of Moses you cannot be saved and verse 5 but some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up and saying it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses circumcision was the sign of the covenant relationship that God established with Abraham the father of the Jewish nation. Although circumcision was only for Abraham's male descendants, everyone was invited into the covenant relationship with God. The sign of circumcision was given to Abraham in Genesis 17. This occurred after Abraham's disastrous attempt by fathering a child with his wife's Egyptian slave to help God fulfill his promise to him of a son. Circumcision was a fitting sign of the covenant. It was a reminder that the best laid plans of humans can never accomplish what God himself has promised. Outward circumcision was to be a symbol of circumcision of the heart, as we read in Deuteronomy 10, verse 16, and chapter 30, verse 6, and Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 4, and Romans two 29. Let's read those verses. So, first of all, Deuteronomy 10.16. Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer... Deuteronomy 30 verse 6, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. And Jeremiah 4 4, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord, and take away the foreskins of your hearts, you men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like fire, and burn so that no one can quench it, because of the evil of your doings and Romans 2.29, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. It represents a stripping away of our confidence in ourselves, and a faithful dependence on God instead. During Paul's time, however, circumcision had become a prized sign of national and religious identity, not what it originally was intended to signify. About 150 years before Jesus' birth, some overly zealous patriots not only forced all uncircumcised Jews in Palestine to be circumcised, but they also required it of all men living in the surrounding nations who fell under their jurisdiction. Some even believed circumcision was a passport to salvation. This can be seen in ancient epigrams that confidently declare things such as CEB Cranfield writes about in a critical and exegetical commentary on the Epistle of Romans page 172 circumcised men do not descend into gehenna hell end of quote it would be a mistake to assume that paul was opposed to circumcision itself what paul objected to was the insistence that gentiles had to submit to circumcision the false teachers said, Unless you were circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Acts 15.1 The issue then was not really circumcision, but salvation. Salvation is either by faith in Christ alone, or it is something earned by human obedience. So to finish today, maybe today circumcision isn't the issue, but what, if anything do we as a church struggle with, that parallels this problem? Tuesday, July 11, Unity in Diversity Question Read Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through to 10. Paul says that the false brothers slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, Galatians 2, verse 4. What are Christians free from? And we're going to look at some texts here. And uh, the last question is, how do we experience for ourselves the reality of this freedom. First of all, Galatians 2, verses 1 through to 10. Then after fourteen years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I preached among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain." Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in, who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But from those who seemed to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man, but those who seemed to be something added nothing to me. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles." And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. And then John chapter 8, verses 31 to 36. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants, and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say, You will be made free? Jesus answered them, Most assuredly I say to you, Whoever commits sin is a slave of sin, and a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. And Romans 6, verses 6 and 7, Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. But he who has died has been freed from sin. And Romans 8, verses 2 and 3. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Galatians 3, verses 23 to 25. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept by the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. And Galatians chapter 4 verses 7 and 8, Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. But then, indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not gods. And Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Freedom, as a description of the Christian experience, is an important concept for Paul. He uses the word more frequently than any other author in the New Testament did, and in the book of Galatians, the word free and freedom occur numerous times. Freedom, however, for the Christian, means freedom in Christ. It is the opportunity to live a life of unhindered devotion to God. It involves freedom from being enslaved to the desires of our sinful nature, as we read in Romans chapter 6, freedom from the condemnation of the law, as we read in Romans 8, and freedom from the power of death, as we read in 1 Corinthians. Question the apostles recognised that Paul, as it says in Galatians 2, seven, had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. What does this suggest about the nature of unity and diversity within the church? The apostles acknowledged that God had called Peter to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, just as he had called Peter to preach to the Jews. In both cases, the gospel was the same, but the way it was presented depended on the people the apostles were trying to reach. Implicit in the above verse, as James D.G. Dunn writes in the Epistle to the Galatians, page 106, is the important recognition that one and the same formula is bound to be heard differently and to have different force in different social and cultural contexts. It is precisely this oneness which is the basis of Christian unity, precisely as unity in diversity. And so to finish today, how open should we be to methods of evangelism and witnessing that take us out of our comfort zone? Are there some forms of evangelism that bother you? If so, what are they? Why do they bother you? And might you need to be more open-minded about these things? Wednesday, July twelve. Confrontation in Antioch Sometime after Paul's consultation in Jerusalem, Peter made a visit to Antioch in Syria, the location of the first Gentile church, and the base of Paul's missionary activities described in Acts. While there, Peter ate freely with the Gentile Christians, but when a group of Jewish Christians arrived from James, Peter, fearful of what they would think, changed his behaviour entirely question why should peter have known better let's compare galatians 2:11 to 13 and acts 10:28 what does his action tell us about just how powerfully culture and tradition can be ingrained in our lives first of all galatians 2:11 to 13 Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face, because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy and acts 10:28 then he said to them you know how unlawful it is for a jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation but god has shown me that i should not call any man common or unclean some have mistakenly assumed that peter and the other jews with him had ceased following the old testament laws about clean and unclean food This, however, does not seem to be the case. If Peter and all the Jewish Christians had abandoned the Jewish food laws, a major uproar in the Church certainly would have followed. If so, there would surely be some record of it. But there is not. It is more likely that the issue was about table fellowship with Gentiles. Because many Jews saw Gentiles as unclean, it was a practice among them to avoid social contact with gentiles as much as possible peter had struggled with this issue himself and it was only a vision from god that helped him to see it clearly peter said to cornelius the roman centurion after he entered his house in acts 10:28 you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a jew to associate with or to visit any one of another nation but god has shown me that i should not call any person common or unclean so although peter knew better he was so afraid of offending his own countrymen that he reverted to his old ways apparently that is how strong the pull of culture and tradition was in peter's life paul though called Peter's actions exactly what they were. The Greek word he used in Galatians 2.13 is hypocrisy. Even Barnabas, he said, was carried away with their hypocrisy. Strong words from one man of God to another. So to finish today, why is it so easy to be a hypocrite? Do we not perhaps tend to blind ourselves to our own faults while eagerly looking for faults in others? What kind of hypocrisy do you find in your own life? More important, how can you recognise it and then root it out? Thursday, July 13, Paul's Concern. The situation in Antioch surely was tense. Peter and Paul, two leaders in the church, were in open conflict. And Paul holds nothing back as he calls Peter to account for his behaviour. Question. What reasons does Paul give for publicly confronting Peter? Galatians two eleven through to 14. Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face, because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, being a Jew, live in the manner of the Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? As Paul saw it, the problem was not that Peter had decided to eat with the visitors from Jerusalem ancient traditions about hospitality certainly would have required as much the issue was the truth of the gospel that is it wasn't just an issue of fellowship or dining practices peter's actions in a real sense compromised the whole message of the gospel question read galatians chapter 3 verse 28 and colossians 3 verse 11 How does the truth in these texts help us understand Paul's strong reaction? Galatians 3.28 There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And Colossians 3.11 Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, But Christ is all and in all during Paul's meeting in Jerusalem with Peter and the other apostles, they had come to the conclusion that Gentiles would enjoy all of the blessings in Christ without first having to submit to circumcision. Peter's action now put that agreement in jeopardy. Where once Jewish and Gentile Christians had joined in an environment of open fellowship, now the congregation was divided, and this held the prospect of a divided church in the future. From Paul's perspective, Peter's behaviour implied that the Gentile Christians were second-rate believers at best, and he believed that Peter's actions would place strong pressure upon the Gentiles to conform if they wanted to experience full fellowship. Thus Paul says in Galatians 2.14, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? The phrase, to live like Jews, can be more literally translated to Judaize. This word was a common expression that meant to adopt a Jewish way of life. It was used to describe Gentiles who attended a synagogue and participated in other Jewish customs. It was also the reason that Paul's opponents in Galatia, whom he called the false brothers, are often referred to as the Judaizers. So to finish the day, as if Peter's actions weren't bad enough, Barnabas got caught up in this behaviour as well. And he was someone who also should have known better. What a clear example of the power of peer pressure. How can we learn to protect ourselves from being swayed in the wrong direction by those around us? Friday, July 14 Ellen White comments in the Seventh-day Adventist Bible Commentary, Volume 6, page 1108, Even the best of men, if left to themselves, will make grave blunders. The more responsibilities placed upon the human agent, the higher his position to dictate and control, the more mischief he is sure to do in perverting minds and hearts, if he does not carefully follow the way of the Lord. At Antioch, Peter failed in the principles of integrity. Paul had to withstand his subverting influence face to face this is recorded that others may profit by it and that the lesson may be a solemn warning to the men in high places that they may not fail in integrity but keep close to principle and that brings us to our discussion questions for this week and there are three number one very few people enjoy confrontation but sometimes it is necessary In what circumstances should a Church condemn error and discipline those who refuse to accept correction? Two, as the Seventh-day Adventist Church grows around the world, it becomes more and more diverse at the same time. What steps can the Church take to make sure that unity is not lost in the midst of such diversity? How can we learn to accept and even enjoy the diversity of cultures and traditions among us while maintaining unity? And three, when sharing the gospel in different cultures, what are the essential elements that should not change? And what can be changed? How do we learn to distinguish between what must remain and what we can, if necessary, let go? And to summarise this week's lesson... The insistence by some Jewish Christians that Gentiles must be circumcised in order to become true followers of Christ posed a serious threat to the unity of the early church. Instead of letting this issue divide the church into two different movements, the apostles worked together to ensure that the body of Christ stayed united and faithful to the truth of the gospel. inside story our mission story this week is the continuation and the final section of rescue in the river the atmosphere grew tense some of the rowdies threatened the baptismal candidates with sticks we don't want christians in our village one man shouted we have our own gods and our own way of worship You must not follow these men who have come to teach their religion. You must continue in the way of our ancestors. It doesn't look like we'll have a baptism today, one of the pastors whispered to the other pastors. Perhaps they would have to return on another day. Just then, the pastors heard a young woman's voice rise above the angry shouts of the crowd. It was Rebecca Tudu, one of the baptismal candidates. Nobody is going to stop me from being baptised today, she shouted, We live in a free country. I will worship whatever God I choose. I choose Jesus Christ, and I am going to be baptized today, whether you like it or not. With these words, Rebecca marched through the mob and on toward the baptismal site. None of the men moved to stop her. Seeing her fearless spirit, fifteen other baptismal candidates followed her. Those sixteen new believers were baptised that day while the angry villagers looked on. The believers, empowered by the Holy Spirit and Rebecca's brave action, took a bold stand for Jesus Christ. Benjamin was among those baptised that day. His baptism brought another miracle into his life. Before his baptism, his eyesight was so poor that he could barely see. But after his baptism, his eyesight improved, and now he is able to read the Bible without difficulty. Twice God has revealed himself to me, Benjamin testified. I have no doubt that God is alive and hears my prayers. Benjamin spends much of his time giving his testimony to the people in the nearby villages. A week after her baptism, Rebecca went to her home village to tell her parents what she had learned during the past few weeks. She shared the Bible truths she treasured and told them about the excitement on the day of the baptism. Her parents were eager to learn more about God and asked Rebecca to invite the pastors to visit their village and teach them. The pastors came and studied with Rebecca's parents for several weeks. One happy day, Rebecca stood by a river bank and watched her parents be baptised. Her two brothers also took their stand, along with others, from their village. And this story was written by C.S. Mirandi, who was the president of the Bihar section Ranchi Bihar in India before his retirement. God is always faithful. This lesson has been read by Dr. Percy Harold in the studios of Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired. It is brought to you by the Sabbath School Department and through the services of Hope Channel. Remember, God is always faithful.